Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Berlin, and our guest today, very special. We've been waiting a few weeks to talk to her because she's had a lot going on in her life over the last uh, few months. But um, Dr. Tierra Price, welcome to Central Line. So glad you're here. Thank you. So happy to be here. <laughs> uh, Dr. Price, would you mind just giving us a little bit of uh, background on what you're doing now and what you've been doing for the last couple of years? I know it's a lot, so however <laughs> much or little you'd want to tell us is up to you. Yeah, so um, I'm Dr. Price uh, Tierra, and I graduated from Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine in 2020, which I can't believe it's been two years now, but that's <laughs> that's where we are. And um, I, right after vet school, I went to uh, Los Angeles to work as a community medicine veterinarian um, in high quality, high volume spay neuter, and providing free services. Um, to the community um, as far as acute uh, conditions go. Um, So like an outpatient type of deal. And then after about a year, I decided to um, explore emergency medicine with the Veterinary Emergency Group and left LA, moved to Brooklyn, New York to work for them for about six months. And now I am one of their travel doctors um, working in the Brooklyn area. That's a lot. <laughs> you've, you've also been involved in some other um, initiatives over your your career as a vet student and veterinarian, right? Yeah, yeah. And so um, outside of the clinical practice, outside of the hospitals, I also run Black DVM Network, which is an online platform for the empowerment of Black veterinary professionals. And so I've been doing that for almost four years now. And, and that's been, that's been really fun too. That's a big undertaking for somebody uh, to take on as a vet student and then to graduate and to go into um, community practice and then emergency practice. Like you're clearly somebody who can handle a lot on her plate. <laughs> I think it's probably safe to say that. Um, but I, I, we could spend an entire podcast talking about each of those adventures on its own. So um, I, I will ask you a little bit more about those as we, as we go on. But before we get into the meat of the podcast, uh, the question that I wanted to ask you today so we can learn a little bit more about you is what would the title of your autobiography be? So I, I love this question because it definitely makes me makes me think <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when it when it comes down to it, I think um, for for a few different reasons. <laughs> Um, I think that the, uh, the, the title of my autobiography would be, um, the rookie and the vet. And so, um, number one, (laughs) the number one thing for anyone that knows me knows that I love, um, the artist Drake. Um, he's a rapper and that is one of his lyrics. I live by his lyrics. And so it's only fitting that one of his lyrics be the title to my autobiography. Um, this is also the um 
the the name of my team for fantasy football and for March oh. Madness every year. So I know that it really speaks to me. Uh, but then <laughs> thirdly, um, it really does encompass who I am in life because since I'm always changing things and trying something new, I'm always the rookie in the room. Like always. Um, and so I just think that play on words, like the rookie and the vet would totally be my autobiography because I'm, I'm always, I'm always trying something new and I'm always, uh, new to the, to the game. <laughs> that is fantastic. And just for those of you listening or watching, like I asked Dr. Price this in, um, I sent her the questions ahead of time. So she did not have that answer, like fully prepared and vetted for this interview. But, um, I, you'd be surprised at the number of people who have actually given this a lot of thought. Like, I think, I don't know if they were asked before or if it's just something that they were like, I wonder, you know, like, yeah. it's like who would play you in the movie of your life? You know, like some people have never right. thought about other people have thought about that a lot. And, um, but I, I'm very impressed with that answer that you came up in a short period of time because it's perfect. Like it's so perfect. And you learned so much about somebody with this question because you know, I, like you, I get restless if I'm just doing the same thing all the time. And so um, I always feel like I'm a rookie at something. I might not be a rookie at everything in life right then, but there's always going to be something that I'm new at. And so that tells me something about you that I think we have that in common. Um, it's, yeah. we don't want to get too comfortable. We always have to go out and and seek out something that we're probably going to look a little silly doing for a while. Exactly, exactly. And I was going to say that, you know, when you when you know that about yourself and you know that you're the rookie in the room, just kind of thinking that and announcing that, it, it shows that yeah. you'll take it in stride, right? I'm yeah. always like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Someone please help me. Yeah. So... And the more times you do it, the more comfortable I feel like you get saying, I don't really know what's going on, but I can figure it out and or I can ask for help when I need it. It's a very good life exactly. skill, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was a good answer. And now you have that answer if anyone asks you that again, ever. And now, I can, now I can start writing my book, right? That's right. You can get right on it. As long as there's no copyright issues, you know, you might have to, you might have to fight some really good lawyers to get that as your title. Yeah. I might just have to contact Drake and ask him if it's okay. That's true. He'll probably say fine. I mean, it's, it makes perfect sense. Um, well, so Dr. Price, you've had a very, um, a very diverse career background already. You know, you you really were working so much with Black DVM Network before you even graduated. Then you graduated the real the weirdest possible time to graduate um, during 2020, and then you've already done community medicine and emergency, and now you're traveling. Um, and I I just I think that's super cool because we all sort of get in our heads that I think in school it's so easy to get stuck and think this is what being a vet looks like. And you're really showing already in this short period of time that it can look a whole bunch of different ways. So I love that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. And I, I actually, um, you know, I've, I've had so much fun with, with trying all these new things and, and seeing everything. And so I've learned so much over the last two years, like way more than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, I bet you have. And I was curious just because I love stories and I feel like stories also kind of um, just help put everything that else that we talk about in context. Do you have any favorite stories about either your time in community medicine or your time in emergency? Yeah, so I think that um, I think that one of my one of my favorite stories that I've 
that I've had um, being an emergency, um, working for the veterinary emergency group, I've learned so much and there are so many amazing stories. Um, but one of the stories that that always that I always love to tell, it's it's not the happiest story, but um, it really it really resonates with me and it's um, it's about this dog that came in and um, he wasn't feeling so well. He hadn't been eating for the last few months. Um, and mom and dad brought him in because they wanted to know what was wrong with him. And just on looking at him, I could tell that there was something like not something really bad going on, basically. Um, and so I talked to them about that, letting them know that I am concerned for, for him just just on looking at him, he's very skinny. Um, his belly is pretty distended, etc. And um, and they, you know, they told me, well, go ahead with your exam. Like, I we, we want to know what you think. And I was like, okay, let's let's see what we what we find. Um, and on exam, I ended up noticing that his his gums were pale, his abdomen was really big. Um, and I so I got the ultrasound, stuck the ultrasound probe on his belly, and it was full of fluid asked them if it was okay if I just tapped the belly really quickly. They said yes. Um, I poked him and it was pretty red, pretty like bloody coming out um, in the syringe. And so let them know that, you know, he was maybe bleeding into his abdomen for whatever reason. And um, at that point, they actually just, you know, asked me, so what are our options? Talk to them about, you know, the chances that it's, you know, cancer, the chances that it's something from trauma. Um, here are some of the things that we can do. And I just ran through all the options for them. And um, at that point, the dad broke down crying and said, we know what we need to do. And then the mom handed me a folder and they had actually been to the veterinary, another uh, veterinarian the day before. And they had, that veterinarian had seen or told them um, the exact same thing. So on that physical exam, the dog, you know, was skinny and had abdomen in its, I mean, blood in its abdomen. And so, um, at that point I was just so confused. I'm like, well, why are you guys here? You know, was this a test? Is, is, is there a camera going to pop out making sure that I, I know what I need to know clinically or, you know, what's going on? You guys already knew all of the things that I just told you. Um, and so I asked them, well, you know, what do you guys, what do you guys think? And, um, the dad said, we, you know, we would like to, um, put him to sleep. And, and so I said, okay. And I took them to a room and it was, it was very, very sad. Um, they, you know, they had their whole family come to say goodbye, but afterwards they thanked me and they were hugging me and they were saying, you know, you gave us all of our options. You talked to us about what we could do. And, you know, the last time, the last time we went to the vet, we were told to do something. Um, and, and we didn't want to do it at the time because we didn't, we wanted to know what our options were. We wanted to feel like it was our decision instead of us being told that. And so it really resonated with me because I think that, um, the medicine it's, it's there. We all know it. Um, but we do have to remember that we're, you know, we're also counseling people through a hard time and we have to give them all of the options, not just what we would do or what we would want to see them do, but we we're here to inform them and then support them through whatever decision that they make. And so that was the moment that, you know, I really, 
knew that like you have to give people all the options and it you know we are not the deciding factor we're we're we are a book (laughs) we're a consolidated book of information for people so that that is a really telling story a really good example of how we can get sort of I know at least speaking for me I can think of instances where I've been sort of like in my own head and thinking, well, this is clearly what's going to end up happening. So I had to just cut to the chase and tell them. And you can even think you're doing the right thing then by telling them the option that you think is best. Um, It's going to prevent the most suffering, but it's not always our decision to make. And in fact, usually it's not our decision to make. Um, If there are other options, we have to talk about them. I think that's really, that's a really, um, it's a sad story, but shows how you can build trust with somebody in such a short period of time um, if you really are communicating well, which kind of leads me into my next question. Because, um, you know, I also I just want to put this out there when we because we're just starting to talk right now. We know you don't have all the answers. Like as a podcast guest, you have this person firing questions at you and like, these today we're going to be talking um, a little bit about how we can address chronic problems in pets that we don't see all the time. Um, so maybe in a community practice setting where um, you know you are treating pets whose owners can't bring them in or don't necessarily know that they're supposed to bring them in regularly for preventive care, um, or in emergency where you don't have any idea what kind of vet care those pets have had if they've had any at all, um, and we've got pain on the brain around here at AHA this year because the pain management guidelines for 2022 came out earlier this year. And so we've been talking a lot about pain and a lot of those conversations have to do with relationships and trust and follow up and like get your team on board and have them call and check up and then reassess the pet and recommend therapies multiple times so that the owner can think about it. And what about owners who you see once? Or you don't know if they're going to follow up or be able to follow up. Like, how do we do our best to treat pain in those animals? Do you do you have any thoughts on that off the bat? Yeah. So, like you said, I mean, well, you know, I'll just be throwing out ideas and um, th- you know, thinking about some of the things that I've seen. Uh, yeah. And and it's it's obvious that we probably won't have you know the answers to those questions today, but. Um, I do think that it's a huge, a huge problem, um, especially for owners that cannot continue um, to support veterinary visits. And um, I think that having so so when I worked in Los Angeles as a community medicine veterinarian, um, you know the the rule there was that um, we could see your pet like maybe once or twice. Um, and it wasn't a hard and fast rule, but it was um, a rule that we that was put in place so that we didn't become a primary care facility and that we could always recommend them to go um, like somewhere else. And I did see pets come back frequently um, for like, you know, maybe arthritis or maybe some type of um, cancer pain, et cetera. And we continued to give them um, give them medication. And so it's, it's tough because you wonder like, well, telemedicine or telehealth fix this or, or help, help this problem. Um, do you dispense drugs, you know, for longer periods of time without, um, coming back 
to the vet. Um, and, you know, obviously there are pros and cons to both, but I think that, you know, we have to start thinking about, about these solutions. Yeah, it is. Um, it feels like bending the rules when you talk about it that way, you know, cause in, exactly. in private practice, we're so used to saying, okay, we can't dispense more than this amount without getting blood work done, or we have to follow up. And if they don't call us back, we can't dispense more meds or something like that. We have to see them once a year. Um, and in a lot of situations, those rules kind of seem like they get a little grayed out or you feel like maybe is the best thing to do to make that gray area rather than a hard and fast rule. Um, it's so hard to know in those situations what to do. I think that the two, like when you break it down, you wonder like what are the problems or what are the barriers that people are, are having to, to accessing that type of care for chronic problems? Is it the money? Is it the lack of veterinary clinics in their area? Is it that they just aren't aware that their animal is in pain, so they don't actually know what um, the signs of pain are in in their pet? Is it, you know, that they are always traveling? So, so thinking about each of the different barriers, I think, helps to talk about solutions. Um, but I feel like there are multiple barriers. Yeah, you're so right. Um, you know, we can feel, we can get a little judgmental, I think, in thinking about, you know, oh, it's just the owners don't want to bring them in or, you know, they don't think it's important. And in my experience, at least, that's been probably the least common reason for them not to come in. Um, most owners care a great deal and they just, there might be a barrier that we're not seeing um, either, you know, a cultural one like the rest of the family doesn't think it's an important way to spend money or um, one member of the couple does and the other one doesn't and it's causing problems and um, finances of course are such a huge one and that's not generally a question of desire it's a question of availability of finances so that is a really good point do you feel like in your experience um, so far do you feel like there was one barrier that was a lot more common in what you've seen yeah, so I mean, in in Los Angeles, I think that the barrier that I really saw was the access to finances um, or having the disposable income to um, put towards the pet. And um, you know, I'm not sure how many people just don't take their dog to the vet because I don't see those people. <laughs> yeah, right. That's like, a good point. Yeah. It's, it's so tough to, um, to say that, you know, people are, are not able to get care be, or people don't seek out care uh, because I think that there are way more people that seek out care than there are people that don't. But also, I don't know um, why people don't seek out care because I don't see those people. So it's yeah. not really a population that I can, um, can, can really talk about, but... For the people that I did see, especially since it was in 2020 through 2021, um, COVID hit a lot of people really hard and um, the financial aspect of it was usually the problem. And so uh, when we think about, you know, that barrier and how to overcome that, so you have the the nonprofits that, that are there to address the financial barrier, but then you have the veterinary clinics that are not um, nonprofits. And so they still have to um, 
operate and pay their people. And so I think that it kind of falls on the, the nonprofits to maybe address that barrier. And it's, it's tough because they all, they only have so much money also. But when we think about the different ways that we could, um, move around that, you know, I know that the talk about veterinary, um, PAs or veterinary NPs, something mirroring the the human profession sometimes Mm -hmm. comes up because then you have um, maybe a visit that doesn't require a full physical exam and, you know, it doesn't require all the things. So it it can be seen at a lower fee um, by someone that has an advanced degree, but um, is not a veterinarian. And so I think that that's, that's probably one of the more novel solutions to to that, um, and then the other, yeah, the other solutions for finances are really um, the the large nonprofits that we see, and even the small ones that are working in the community to find those people and get them um, the medications and consults that they need. This Aha podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Care Credit understands you're busier today than perhaps ever before. To help free up your time, the Care Credit Health and Pet Care Credit Card allows clients to access a budget-friendly financing experience anytime from anywhere. They can learn, see if they pre-qualify, apply, and even pay if approved, all on their own smart device. With just a tap, they have a friendly, contactless way to pay over time for the services and treatments their pet needs. And you get a few more minutes to take care of patients, take care of business, and take care of yourself. Yeah, it is a complicated problem, and it does put a lot of burden on the nonprofits um, and rescue organizations, and you know, um, all, all the the people who are out there just trying to increase the access to care and make sure that um, that people know that there are options if they can't afford to take their vet to or take their pet to a regular vet. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I do feel like so that. That issue of the veterinary PA or NP, the mid-level practitioner, that's a fraught one, man. People have some very strong opinions about that one. So we won't get into that today. I actually did talk to another veterinarian about this for an episode, so that'll be coming up. But um, I... That is an interesting proposal because at the moment, there's no laws that that extend a license to a mid-level professional. And so that person would still have to be working under a veterinarian and that veterinarian's license. And I think that's the biggest obstacle I can see to that right now is um, increasing access to care without the veterinarian actually laying hands on that patient. Um, So, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. That doesn't mean that that can't be a solution we know what we would have to do to make that a solution. So, um, so I, I'm really interested to see where that goes. Um, and then also, you know, I, I feel like working in emergency, you must have seen a fair number of pets come in who don't see veterinarians regularly. And so their owners realized there was a problem they couldn't deal with at home or they couldn't wait to see if it went away or they did and that didn't work because it didn't go away. And then they came in to see you. Um, would, is that fair to say that you've seen a, a significant number of patients like that? Yeah. So we, I, as an emergency veterinarian, I do see a lot of patients that um, don't have a primary care veterinarian and they I mean some of the people that I see I've seen them multiple times they come to Mm -hmm. the ER for 
four things that probably could be addressed by um, a primary care veterinarian or a family vet. And that, you know, I always encourage them. We actually have a list of, you know, close to 100 clinics in the surrounding area that are general practices that we say, you know, choose anyone that you want. If it's close to your house, if you like the name, if you've seen it on TV, like just choose one and try to develop a relationship with one of the veterinarians there. If you don't like them, like you can go to any of these other ones, but you definitely need, you know, we, we try to emphasize, like try to go to a primary care vet. And that's really because on emergency, it's more expensive to get mm-hmm. certain issues addressed that are not emergent than if you went to your family vet. Um, and then it also kind of, like overcrowds us with with cases that maybe could be seen the next day or, or not urgent, et cetera. And so um, we we always encourage them to go to a primary care facility, especially if they are um, coming to the ER, because like I said, it's more expensive. Now, when I worked in Los Angeles as a community medicine veterinarian, that wasn't as much of a conversation because it, it dies very quickly when I say, you know, here's, you know, maybe you should see a general practice or you should develop a relationship with the primary care vet. And they say, I don't have any money. <laughs> so then you're like, okay, well, come back in two weeks for a recheck. <laughs> and, 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 you know, yeah. you're kind of becoming the, the primary, the primary care for them. Yeah. It's tough because at least they're coming in, but yeah. you know that they and the pet would benefit a great deal from that relationship with a primary care vet. And, and now, of course, you know, graduating when you did, a huge number of primary care vets that I know weren't taking new patients um, and could barely see the ones that they have. I mean, I know everybody is still really pressed for time in a lot of areas um, just to see the patients they have now. So it is really, really hard. Um, and it definitely brings up the big question of access to care isn't just about money. It's also about having enough people to see the pets at a price point they can afford in the locations they can get to when they're busy and working two jobs or um, single parents or all the things that we don't know that are going on behind the scenes. Um, yeah. And I, I just wonder how we can better increase the awareness of resources to people who don't, you know, who just show up at emergency with the dog who's clearly been limping a lot longer than a few days. Um, you know, how can we get that word out? Do we, is it ads? Is it, you know, going online? Is it, you know, some kind of like public service announcements? Like how do we get that word out there and be like, hey, not only do you need to take your pet in, but here are the resources available to you to do that in this area. Yeah, and I think that, I think that in um, in the veterinary industry, and I, I've seen it evolve um, since I've been following vet med when I was, you know, 14 or something. I've seen I've seen marketing evolve, but I think that marketing is still a really important tool that we haven't completely tapped into yet. Mm-hmm. And I think I agree that so we, much there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that we can we can really continue to get creative with how we market things and how we talk about things and um and how we get resources into into people's hands. Um, we have social media, we have television, we have, you know, the internet, all of, 
all of these things. And I think continuing to talk to people about about those things are important. Um, I love the idea of like these pet communities. So um, or pet owner communities, basically, I've seen a couple of them online. Um, Dogly is one of them that that I like. And so it's a community for dog owners. And they have trainers and they have nutritionists and they have veterinarians. Um, and they have all these people that are there that uh, dog owners can consult with. They have a little store. Um, and so even if not everyone on that website completely agrees and has a consensus on how things should be done, at least the, the dog owners that are going to that website um, can find a plethora of resources and they can ask questions to trusted professionals, which I think um, I think is really important to just increase the level of of awareness. Yeah, I love that. And you know we pet owners join online communities whether we want them to or not, right? So <laughs> it would be a good idea to like I always cringe when one of my friends says, you know, oh, I'm thinking of getting a Weimaraner and I want, I'm going to join the Weimaraner community on Facebook. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, because <laughs> I just picked a breed, but it's because if it's a breed most people probably should think twice before they own right. based on lifestyle factors. But, um, but I, you know, I just think about all the times that we've been like, oh my God, this owner got this advice from somebody online. We don't know who they are. So we might as well steer them to a community where we know that there are at least opinions there that are valid and evidence-based and ones that can guide them in the right direction instead of just sending them down some rabbit hole of misinformation. Yeah. <laughs> Not that, that ever yeah. happens. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think it's just a great opportunity for veterinarians to to delegate, which is, mm-hmm. you know, another issue that, that veterinarian yeah. medicine sometimes runs into is um is that delegation factor. And so, uh, you know, finding ways to be collaborative, to delegate and, and to, uh, really fine tune the marketing, I think would, would help because there are so many people I talk to on a daily basis about the same thing, even on ER, it's the same thing. And they had absolutely no idea. They had no idea that if they didn't see their cat pee for three days and now it's yowling in the litter box that it was going to be fatal. They had no idea. Um, And so, you know, just kind of continuing to get that word out there and letting people know, I think is important. Yeah, you made a great point right there about delegating and about, I I would say about maximizing the strengths of the people on your team, right? Like Mm -hmm. a veterinarian doesn't have to be the one who's telling the community that if your cat doesn't pee for three days, it's a medical emergency, you know, a veterinary technician or nurse is fully capable of having that conversation. And though they're, you know, they're so capable of doing so many things that many of us don't see them doing on a regular basis, which is such a shame. We've talked about that multiple times on this podcast, and I'm glad that's a conversation we're seeing happening so much now. But that also reminds me of the, you know, a question I didn't ask when you brought up the idea of a mid-level professional like again you don't have all the answers i get that this is a this is sort of a brainstorming discussion this is not really a like here's the answers to all these huge questions but like do you think that we need a mid-level professional if we could maximize the abilities of our veterinary technicians and nurses under our practice acts like do you think that we could we could do that with the teams that we have yeah, so that's a that's a really good question. And I, you know, I'm I understand 
the the laws around you know extending the license and and what can mm-hmm. be said and what can't be said um, or what can be done and what can't be done but um, you know I would love to see us max out our technicians abilities mm-hmm. and I would love to see us max out our assistance abilities and max out our practice manager um, and really get to that maximum efficiency and then we can start thinking about what what adjunct um, tools do we want to use because you're yeah. right like if we maximize the use of our technicians then then where does a mid-level um, practitioner sit and I've worked in some offices where there are tech appointments right to kind yeah. of cut out sutures or or do whatever and so that kind of lends itself to having that mid-level practitioner, but without um, getting into new laws and new licenses and and new regulations. And so, yeah, I would love to see us just be as as efficient as possible and see what that gets us. Um, I would also love to see more consults happening outside of the clinic. And I think that that, um, that that can really help. And you can maybe have, I mean, imagine, Imagine that we are all on a four-day work week and we go into the clinic for three of the days and maybe two days we see appointments and one day we do surgery and then the other day is an admin day to sit at home and answer uh, phone calls, maybe, you know, phone calls that are coming into the clinic, you can divert them to the vet that's at home, Um, do follow-ups and catch up on records. Like that, yeah. I mean, I just feel like that sounds like a lovely life and you can, it does. you know, <laughs> and, you, and you can get everything, everything um, done and you, maybe you can do that for your technicians also. They can call back people with results. I don't know, um, you know, how other people communicate with their physicians, but when I get results back, it's almost never my doctor. I mean, it's someone else yeah. calling me <laughs> and then if I have questions... I don't even know what to do. I don't think that my doctor would be available to answer <laughs> my questions. Yeah, no. <laughs> Probably safe to say no. Yeah, I'm lucky. You're lucky if you get a phone call. Like, I get a letter in the mail if my tests are normal. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. just how it goes. I, yeah, definitely. You know, it's really interesting because, um, you know, all the episodes on this podcast so far, like, we've talked about teamwork. Big time. Like, we love the idea mm-hmm. of everybody on the veterinary team working to the top of their ability and desire, right? Like, not every veterinary technician would want to see patients without mm-hmm. a veterinarian there. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. There's room for right. more than one type of, of role. Um, you know, some veterinary, some vet techs love working in surgery and others are like, please, I do not ever want to do that. And that's fine. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't a very large number of technicians who could do that now. Um, I'm convinced that the vet techs I just worked with for four and a half years um, at my last hospital could see ear infections for the most part without me <laughs> because they pretty much knew what I was going to say before I said it. You know, they've, they've seen a lot. Um, and with a little bit of supplementary education on the nuances of certain things, like there's no reason why why they couldn't do those things. Um, they're just so smart and motivated. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the thing I was going to say is that, you know, this podcast, this episode, we're talking about, um, pets that don't typically see vets very often right. and increasing access to care and what happens when you don't have that relationship. And it still comes back to leveraging your team, 
maximizing their strengths and making sure that clients, if they come once, know what all the options are mm-hmm. for the next time. Like maybe they can't make it in for a follow-up visit. So you start with a telehealth appointment and see where we are. Like me and that already increases the ability of so many people to to do that follow-up appointment. Um, and maybe a technician can do a follow-up call. You don't, it might not even be something a veterinarian has to do. And um, just thinking outside of the box a little bit like that could yeah. dramatically make a difference. No, and I, I really do think that that's true, um, especially when we talk about, so I would say, for example, in ER, um, a lot of times the my instructions are to follow up with your primary care veterinarian in the next three to five days or in the next five to seven days. Um, I tell people, you know, if you have a primary care veterinarian, I would call, like, we're going to send them the records, you know, in the next 24 hours, and you should call them as soon as you leave here so that they know that, you know, you're trying to follow up. Um, but if someone doesn't have a primary care veterinarian and I know that they're, you know, not, they're going to get lost to follow up. Does that mean that I only prescribe, you know, three days worth of medication when I know that they're going to need a longer course? Right. You know, that's always that's always kind of the um, the the toss up there is well, how do we meet these people in in the middle um, because they they still have a life, they still have a job to go to. Maybe finances aren't so constrained. Maybe they can afford to go to the vet, but like they have to go to their job in order to afford that. And so if they brought their pet in on emergency at 7 p.m. on a Wednesday night, are they going to be able to follow up with their primary care vet during, you know, working hours on Monday? Are they going to be able to get that time off? Um, And so it becomes really, really complicated. And I think that just kind of instead of telling people like, yeah, you need to follow up in, in three to five days, bye. Um, can you follow up with your primary care vet in three to five days? Do you think that this is feasible? Um, if not, if you want to step out and call and leave a voicemail, I can maybe give you a, a few more days worth of medication to hold you through. I mean, I don't think that that's, um, that's a terrible thing to do because why would I, why would I leave this gap for pain or for antibiotic resistance um, for this animal when, you know, the, the person's telling me like, this is actually not an option for me. And so, um, so, you know, I need to, like, I, I, I won't be able to do that. I actually had, um, one, <laughs> one case where, um, it was a dog with an open pio. So an open pyometra and, um, you know, I, I could smell it. I could see it. It was everywhere, but I officially diagnosed it and talked to the owner about the options. You know, we can go to surgery now. We can try some antibiotics, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, surgery is probably going to be the best, you know, the option at the top of the list because we will eventually need to be spayed so that this doesn't happen again. And I don't want us to get super, super sick, you know, just waiting for antibiotics to kick in. Um, and she was, she took a deep breath and she's like, okay, um, I understand all of this, but do you think it can hold off for the next nine days until I have my baby? Cause she was nine months pregnant. Oh <laughs> and it's like, that's, you know, I mean, that, that is valid. That is valid. Like she doesn't want to put her dog through surgery when she could possibly go into labor at any moment. <laughs> and so, yes, I'm like, that, yep. <laughs> And so what do you say in those cases? It's like, 
yes, like, let me give you some antibiotics. Please keep a close, close eye on your dog. If anything happens, bring them back in. If, if, if she's not looking very, very good, just bring her back in. Um, but, but I mean, <laughs> that, that's a barrier, a barrier, so-called barrier that she can't control. Um, yeah. so we have to, we, we have to work with people. <laughs> yeah, we do. And you know that that owner would have, if you said this is an emergency, like they would have figured it out. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, we have to do some, we have to do surgery today. You know, exactly. It, they, it doesn't sound like that's a person who was going to say that's not an option. Um, especially mm-hmm. somebody who's like about to give birth and then is ready to like the second she gives birth to like bring the dog back in. <laughs> um, you know, that's a person that cares about her dog. And, um, and that's the big thing. You know, I hate that phrase you can't care more than the owner does. Um, you know, when we talk about owners leaving against medical advice or something, because for the most part, they do care. They just oftentimes don't have all the tools to get that care. Um, and this conversation has been a good reminder of all of that. Cause I'm sure you've seen your share of those pets, um, working in the jobs you have. And, you know, I, I, the other thing that I want to do is make sure, um, you know, everyone knows like, Nonprofits are really important. Um, you know, subsidized care is really important. But do you feel like each of us has a responsibility to do what we can within our own practice situations or wherever we're working, regardless of our role on the team, to try to increase access of care? Yeah, no, I think that it's 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 a it is a um it is something that everyone in vet med should be should be thinking about and should be aware of mm-hmm. and should be wondering what can i do um at the veterinary emergency group um, i'm so proud of <laughs> proud of us for doing this um which is we will do certain things to stabilize a pet in an emergency um even if that person says i don't have the money for this we yeah. can we can place a catheter, right? We can place a catheter. We can at least get fluids going until you figure out the situation. We're, we can't do surgery, you know. We can't do we can't do surgery for free, but we can at least try to stabilize and then talk to you about the options and then really have a real conversation about you know if this is a blocked cat and this could very well happen again and we can't afford this right now you know what do the options really really look like um and so i think that i think that what we can all do is as veterinary professionals is be aware of the resources that are out there know the resources that are in your area that you can refer people to and then kind of see like what are some things um if i present an entire estimate to someone and they say i don't have any money i can't do any of that well, what can we do for you right now to hold you over until you can call the ASPCA or the Humane Society or, um, you know, the the local nonprofit in in your area? I do think that it's too stressful for us as veterinary professionals to put the entire burden of um, free care on clinics that still have to pay people and still have to pay their own bills. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is completely detrimental to our mental health and to all of the work that we've done to get to where we are. Um, but, but at least being aware of the resources that are in your area, where can you direct clients to and what can you do to help just get them, 
you know, how can you be that bridge to get them to the next place? Is that least a start? Answer. Yeah, I love that answer. Um, the resources in the area can be difficult to, for people to find when they're emotionally distressed and trying to find care in a hurry. And oftentimes that care may not be available in a hurry if they haven't communicated before. So that's really, really good advice. Um, Dr. Price, thank you. We, you. We've done a lot of speculating, but also there's a lot of really concrete, um, a really good advice in what you've said. And just a perspective, I think, that's important for people to remember who may be in kind of a private practice bubble. Like a lot of my colleagues and friends work at these high-touch practices where, you know, marketing is focused on finding our client and making sure that, you know, people who need low-cost care aren't necessarily looking at that practice because it's not a good fit. That's important, but just as important is finding a way to market to people um, who need a lower-cost care and who don't maybe know what options they have out there. And I I think this has been a really good reminder. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been so fun. It's been so fun talking and, and thinking of of new ways and, you know, thinking of things that I can even probably do within my own practice to help people um, that need access to care. So it's been really fun. Love that. Um, Dr. Price, where can people find you and Black DBM Network if they want to learn more about that? Yeah, so um, Black DBM Network, we have a few places. We have our website, www.blackdvm.com like Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, network.com. Um, we're also on social media, so Instagram, Facebook, at Black DVM Network. And um, then I'm also I'm on LinkedIn, Dr. Tierra Price, so feel free to, uh, to reach out. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic, and I'm so glad we got this scheduled and that we both moved across the country in time to have this conversation. Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, so much going on. Um, but um, I really appreciate it. I hope we get to talk again sometime soon. Yes. And um, yeah, and uh, thank yeah. you all for listening to Central Yes, Line. thank you so much. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.